Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in another packed episode from C21's Content LA and the LA screenings, we hear from Universal Television Alternative Studios' Toby Gorman, CBS Studios' Brian Seabree, Lindsay Martin, Kate Adler and Alec Botnick, TV4 Sweden's Catherine Wiernick, Cineflix writes James Dury, and TV2 Norway's Nina Lorgan Fleming, and from Religion of Sports, Gotham Chopra. C21's Content LA took place at the Fairmont Century Plaza last week, featuring execs from CBS, Fox, Universal, Warner Brothers Discovery, Amazon, CAA and many more. The event preceded this week's LA screenings, during which the major US studios, some returning to licensing for the first time in several years, showed off their hottest new shows to international buyers. But with Hollywood in the midst of a writer's strike and production on hiatus as a result, plenty of questions remain about whether series not already in the can will be able to move forward as intended. We're going to be hearing a lot more about these issues and more in this episode. Coming up later on, CBS Studios' Brian Seabree, Lindsay Martin, Kate Adler and Alec Botnick. TV4 Sweden's Catherine Winnick, Cineflix writes James Jury and TV2 Norway's Nina Lorgan Fleming and Religion of Sports' Gotham Chopra talking about his new Netflix docuseries on mixed martial arts superstar Conor McGregor. But first, from Content LA, Universal Television Alternative Studio President Toby Gorman spoke to Claire Atkinson about building on key titles like The Titan Games, World of Dance and That's My Jam, partnering with the BBC on The Traitors and new adventure competition format Destination X, plus the possibility unscripted production will accelerate to plug the holes created by the US writers' strike. So, Toby, I was at the upfronts where all the advertisers from around the US get to see the sizzle reel that NBC shows, and they get to allocate their advertising revenue for the whole year against it. Um, Some amazing shows, audience, great reaction. Tell me about what you do at Universal, what your division is all about, and give us kind of the scope of um, some of the shows that that you're working on. Sure. Um, So we're called... UTAS for short, because it's a bit of a mouthful, so we'll go with UTAS moving forward. Um, uh, We specialize in non-scripted content, right? We like to say that we make our contestants or our participants' dreams come true. I like to say that we give away Brian Roberts' money, uh, who owns the company. (laughs) We give a lot of prize money away in our game shows. Um, We started seven years ago with a single game show, uh, and we've grown since then uh, considerably. Um, and sort of we've become known for these big brands, big ideas with big A-list talent. So uh, the Titan Games uh, with The Rock, Jennifer Lopez um, on World of Dance, and most recently uh, That's My Jam, which is now going around the world with Jimmy Fallon. So we love these these formats. Formats is the foundation of our business, no question, uh, and continues to be. But we are starting to pivot into documentary, docuseries, crime, which has been really exciting uh, and a big, uh, a big part of our growth. Um, but creating a format that travels around the world is really a, always going to be our focus. And uh, Hollywood Game Night is made in now 25 countries. Um, and uh, The Wall is made in 30. So we're always in pursuit of that idea that can be replicated. But these days, we're sort of in everything but scripted. So it's a lot of fun. Sounds like a dream job to me. Um, 
I have to ask you about this show called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning on Peacock. What on earth is that? Okay, so that sounds really morbid. Uh, it's, it, uh, and, and in some ways, it is a little, but it's, it's based on a book, a best-selling book. Uh, and, and we're producing, or we produced this series with um, Amy Poehler and her company Paper Kite uh, and uh, Scout, who make Queer Eye. And it's, so it's just an incredibly beautiful show. Uh, that is based on this book and in essence it's getting your stuff in order before you die now that sounds pretty miserable uh, but the truth is it's a very very funny show and Amy uh, uh, voices it and there's so much levity and, and you will cry and you will laugh it within seconds which is it's an emotional roller coaster and it just launched on Peacock I think two weeks three weeks ago I'm going to check it out for sure. Um, we talked about LA Fire and Rescue. There's kind of a personal story there for you, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. So it's Dick Wolf. It's a Dick Wolf project. So this is Dick Wolf's first unscripted project on broadcast. Um, and it's uh, an incredible uh, uh, show where we've got unprecedented access to the Los Angeles uh, Fire and Rescue teams. So we embedded with these heroes, these everyday heroes that walk among us and have captured just some incredible material. And it premieres uh, in June on NBC. And I was just sharing with Claire, like when that pitch came in, it was Dick Wolf's team that brought it um, to us, to our department. I cried, I watched the tape and we talked about it and, and I was crying. And uh, the reason is, the reason I got so emotionally invested in this project is four years ago, uh, my wife was very sick and we had to call the emergency services to our house and they were involved in saving her life. So I know how, I think we all know how special these people are, but you don't truly know until you have to dial 911. And I did that day and they, they were incredible. So I love that we're celebrating everything they do. I love that we're exposing how hard they work and the emotions that they go through and really what they face on a daily basis is pretty mind blowing. So it's another, another great series. So we're going to turn to the Americas. I don't know if everybody in the audience knows about the show. I'm sure you do, but it really stood out at the upfronts. The sizzle reel is amazing. You see a shark going up on the beach and eating a seal. Scary. Um, tell us about the cinematography. Tell us about um, tell us the story that it tells. And tell us about Tom Hanks. Yeah. How the hell did you get Tom Hanks oh, to come voice oh, it for you? So that was a bucket list <laughs> thing for me. I've yeah. always wanted to um, uh, produce something with, with Tom Hanks. Like, who doesn't? <laughs> and so it, it's amazing that we've partnered with him on this, and he's going to be narrating the series. It's a 10-part odyssey from the North to the South Pole across the world's only supercontinent, the Americas. Um, and it's four years in the making, thousands of hours uh, of material, over 150 expeditions across the continent from 10,000 feet below the ocean to 15,000 feet above. The teams have caught or have captured unprecedented material, some stuff that has never been seen before, animal behaviors that have never been seen that scientists are now deconstructing. And so uh, I've just um, started to see some of the material. We cut that very exclusive tape for the upfronts. It was great to share that with the world. There's a lot of um, uh, uh, new camera technology that's being used in it as well to capture, uh, uh, to get up close with certain animals and certain habitats. So more to come on it. We'll be starting to share some of the material uh, in the fall. It's due to air next year on NBC. It's, it's just, I think it's once in a, you don't see something of this scale 
I would say, every 10 years. It's bigger than planet Earth. It's, bigger, it's, just, it's the biggest thing we've done uh, in the unscripted space, the most expensive thing and the longest thing because it takes so Can we much. we say time. how expensive? Too expensive. It's Very expensive. expensive. More investment. expensive than planet Earth, which was reported to have cost $25 million, but we think it maybe was more than that in the end. Yeah, yes, it's a little up, uh, a little up than that. And hopefully, hopefully worth it. You know, we're, we're, um, we're expecting it to be a big one for our company and, and for the distribution teams around the world. Yeah, I have a Slido question from somebody here. What kind of documentary content is Universal interested in? Um, it, uh, there aren't really, any, it's hard to give you a framework for that. Um, it's really, we're interested in stories that cut through. So we're not a volume business. It's not about how much uh, output. It's really about how much can cut through and make uh, and have an emotional connection with the audience. So if it's a story that it feels like that needs to be told, we will pursue it. If we feel like there is a platform that will be interested in partnering with us, we will pursue it. So. Anything goes, but we are in crime. We've got a big sports doc that we're announcing uh, very shortly. Um, uh, so yeah, I think we're in all, all types of documentary uh, storytelling now. It just needs to be something that resonates. Mm. You, you mentioned sports. That's a really huge area of, of growth right now. Uh, is there anything more you can say about it? I, I, Not yet. Uh, annoyingly, no, wait, I Not wish yet. I could. Okay. But it's a, it's a fantastic uh, documentary that uh, has been two years in the making incredible partners uh, on it, but hopefully we'll be announcing uh, fully next month. Yeah, great. So let's get to the next question about partnerships. You um, are in the co-production business in, the big, in a big way yeah. with the BBC, with a whole host of other partners. Tell me about your attitude. What, what is it that um, you'd like the audience to know about how those uh, co-production partnerships work, what you're looking for? Um, yeah, tell us, tell us about what your views are. So I'm sure you've all heard, it, uh, people like to say it's a relationship business. I, I like to think of this as a collaboration business. We collaborate with the best in the business to, it, it, for specific projects and specific storytelling. So uh, for the Americas, we collaborated with the BBC Natural History Unit. They're the best in the business uh, and, and are very much in the driving seat for the project and um, a great example of how a great partnership can work across two huge organizations, by the way. I think it's the first time um, uh, the BBC Natural History Unit is producing something for another broadcast network. So, so that is a, a good example of what we love to do. I mentioned Swedish Death Cleaning. We partnered with Scout. They've done an incredible job with the show, just like um, uh, Queer Eye for a Straight Guy. So there are times where we run full physical production for shows uh, on That's My Jam. We run the production on that, and we've partnered with Jimmy Fallon's production company, uh, who has a overall within our organization. Uh, they're called Electric Hot Dog, but we run production services. So when it makes sense, we will, we will be in that driving seat running production. But, but we're so happy to sit back and let the experts do the hard work. Um, uh, and, and, and LA Fire and Rescue is another good example of that. We partnered with Dick Wolf, as I mentioned, but also 44 Blue, who are prolific in this sort of space. Uh, and they've been uh, tremendous partners uh, with us as well. So. My, one of my old bosses used to say, it's a team sport, and I just believe that so, so deep to my core. This is not something, if you think about every major show, every major production, it's not one human that's, in, that, that's um, responsible for it. It's a team, it's usually a collaboration and a collective. So we love finding great people to work with. Good, uh, another Slido question, and please keep them rolling, people. Um, see if I can read it. Unscripted, is there an internal focus for UTAS to work with more NBC development teams? Or does UTAS operate independently and create original content separately? 
Fantastic question. Who, who, who asked the question? It's anonymous. It say, it's anonymous. That's a good question. It's Brian Roberts. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're, most people think we just make shows um, for our internal platforms. And of course, we love to do that. But that is not uh, how we're set up. We're set up to take the project, the story, the show, to the best platform or the platform that makes the most sense. So thankfully, we partnered with pretty much all the major distribution, uh, distributors and pla platforms. Our biggest client is NBC Universal, and we love to to to, um, to make shows for NBC. But they don't have a first look or an overall or anything like that. We are completely free and clear on the studio side, but we are one organisation, and so we love to find shows and make hits for them. But but it's not certainly not a mandate. Let's talk about your talent deals because they are pretty stunning. If you want to work with Seth MacFarlane, Jordan Peele, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, or John Legend. You have to go through this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> get through me. But certainly, yes, they... Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory on our studio. We were... Um, uh, Utah used to sit freely within the organization. We just operate on our own. And during COVID, uh, a decision was made to bring the, the... There were four studios all operating independently. Bring them all together under one banner. And that was when USG was formed, Universal Studios Group. Uh, Polina Ibokwi is our chairman and has really brought the clans together in the most magnificent way. And so, of course, there's lots of uh, efficiencies and back office, but the real benefit is talent. And so when a deal sits like Dick Wolf on the Universal television side, and now we're all one group, we have direct contact, Dick's team, and all of a sudden now we've got five projects with, with Dick Wolf. So us coming together across the organization has, has been amazing for our talent deals and really helped the return on the investment in these talent deals. So yes, we've, we, we've, we're very fortunate to have made shows with The Rock and Seth MacFarlane and that list. And that, by the way, the list is about 30, uh, 30 deep. Um, uh, and, and if you want to be in business with them, uh, you, you'll have to work with us, yeah. And that's where I think it's important for everyone in this room that often the misconception is, okay, so we have to work with the studio and now they're going to take all our fees or, or take production from us. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's, it's about, as I said, collaboration. If there is a good idea, there's a good seed um, uh, coming from ex, uh, externally, we love to join forces and we love to be fair. Uh, and we're doing it a lot. But I still find that some people think, oh no, giant studio business, uh, you're gonna destroy me. And it just, it, it, I used to be in the independent sector. I spent 20 years in production companies bouncing around. I know how they work. I know how small the margins are. And we're very much uh, uh, trying to protect that uh, for the third parties. Mm -hmm. That's a good answer. Um, tell me about Jimmy Fallon, who I love. <laughs> I've been Anything to his specific? late night show, and I just... Was, You've been? Yes. Amazing. It was an experience. He goes into the audience. When the commercials roll, he goes into the audience and <laughs> chats with people and sings them happy birthday. He's a good egg. Um, tell me a little bit about That's My Jam. It was incubated through his late night show. Yeah. Um, third series pickup? Yes, hoping so. Uh, very likely. Um, season two just finished. It actually outperformed season one, uh, which we're very happy about here in the U.S., it originated, it's, it's a bunch of games that Jimmy's been playing on The Tonight Show over the years. So the guy's just been creating seeds of shows um, that we're now harvesting. And so we took the best musical games and turned them into a musical game show for celebrities. Um, and it's, it's just a lot of fun. You know, uh, it, we've, we've shot uh, 20 plus shows now here in the US. It's been optioned in 12 countries. Uh, it's about to launch in Germany, uh, did rather well in the UK with Mo Gilligan as the host. 
um, and we're, we're expecting a season two there. So yeah, it's just, it's an amazing show that keeps going from strength to strength. Uh, but there is more to come there. There is more to come from what Jimmy has been, been doing on The Tonight Show. Uh, and it's one of my favorite development meetings when I get to hunker down with that team and talk about what we should be doing next. And, and we've got another one in the hopper that I'm really excited about. Wow. Six minutes left, people. If there's any other Slido questions, keep them coming. Um, let's go in a different direction and talk about Destination X. You've got US rights. You are partnered with the BBC to co-develop the format. Um, is this the next big one, do you think? Next big adventure show? Yeah, um, I certainly hope so. It originated in Belgium uh, a few months ago. Did very well there. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's sort of amazing race type uh, uh, format where 10 contestants get on a bus and they're driven around Europe and the bus has blacked out windows. So they, they get disorientated. They don't know where they are in Europe. And at the end of the hour, they sit in a pod and have to guess where they are, right? So I'm in Denmark, I'm in Paris, I'm in London, Rome, whatever it may be, they press the screen, they put an X on the screen. And throughout their journey, they're given clues. So they get out of the bus, they see some things, but also some misdirects. But what's beautiful about it is the audience don't know either. So at the very end of the show, whoever's the furthest guess from where they truly are in Europe is kicked off the bus. They stand in front of the bus. The bus pulls away, and then there's this magnificent reveal to the individual and to the audience at home where they are. So great play along. Um, it's, uh, it's catching fire across the world. Uh, we were very lucky to get in there early. Super excited to be partnering with the BBC on it again. Our organizations came together on Traitors, which this did so well and just won a BAFTA in the UK, uh, Peacock uh, out here for the US. So we're trying to do more of that. And there's a lot of heat behind it. We're just, uh, we're, we're taking a little development period just to, to make it fit for us. There's a big debate as to whether we should do it in the US, do it in Europe and all to be figured out. But it's certainly got all the ingredients and all the signals of something that could be pretty big. Of course, you never know. If I knew, I, I, I'd be- Very rich. I'd be very rich. <laughs> Um, how do you find ideas, Toby? Are you pitched? Are you drowning under a stack of pitches? Do you spend nights watching YouTube? Do you travel? Like, how do you find the ideas? All of it, all of it for sure. Uh, the development team has pitched a great number of projects constantly, uh, and then they, the, the ones that they're excited about bubble up to me. So we have an incredible development team within the studio that are, are, are you know, relentless. Um, and we love to, like the Jimmy one is a great example where we came together and we, we figured that out ourselves. So it, it, we're spending a bunch of our time internally trying to make the most of our, um, our overalls and our IP within uh, Univer NBC Universal. Uh, uh, and I, I like to say truthfully that I think we'd be naive to imagine that we were gonna find the next big one on our own. We're certainly trying, we'd love to crack it, but we're more likely to find it with a partner uh, um, uh, and, and I think, truthfully, an international partner. But um, we're, our doors are open. We take pitches from everyone and everyone, um, pr pr providing you're uh, represented by an agency. Uh, um, but yeah, if, if you look over our catalog, some of them have come from overseas, some of them have been homegrown, some of them have come locally through partners. So it's kind of anywhere. And a good idea can come from anywhere. Um, and we don't, we, uh, we're open to it all. Um, we have a very cheeky question here about whether a British accent makes a show seem more appealing. 
Well, you tell me. <laughs> I've just I've just explained a few. Uh, I don't know whether you leaned in or leaned away, but um, <laughs> yeah, the truth is I'm from Boston, uh, and yeah, no, I I, I, Not I, your I, real I hope so. I, I sound smarter than I really am. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so just to wind up on a serious topic, actually, uh, the writer's strike, uh, we're all very aware that uh, the writers feel that they're not being compensated in a fair way. Um, they feel that um, the economics of streaming has left them um, with less of the pie than perhaps before. You know, th there's a question as to how you deal with that. How is Hollywood, how, is, how are producers managing through this situation and we don't know how long this is going to last it could be a few months um can you explain kind of how the, explain the landscape for us right now does it um is it obviously it's challenging yes um extremely i, I think i'll give you the non-scripted take because i think there's a i think there's a misconception again that in a strike we're all making a ton of unscripted shows um, and at least for us, that just isn't the case. We use a lot of WGA writers on our productions. So actually, it's very disruptive uh, uh, for us as well. Um, and the sooner we can, uh, uh, it, or it can be concluded, I think the better for the whole industry. What I will add is uh, that, depending on how long it goes on for, what I believe will happen is towards the end of the year, once it is resolved and we're all back in business, the, our genre will uh, definitely be under a little bit of stress to try and move faster, to accelerate, to plug the hole. So I do expect we will be accelerating some projects uh, for the schedule uh, next year. Um, but I've been asked, oh, is this, isn't this great for your business? No, it's not great for anybody's business. It needs to be resolved. It's extremely serious and the sooner the better. Thank you so much. I think we're just going to end on this last question because I think it's a good one. Um, are you producing any docs or series that are in a language for territories outside the US but have global appeal? Certainly the stories we are telling, we like to think have global appeal, but everything we are doing is in English. Um, we are focused on the US market uh, at our studio, um, but if it was the right thing and it made sense, of course, like anything is possible. But as of now, um, everything is in English. Excellent. Round of applause for Toby, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to the session, Content Strategies. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Toby Gorman speaking with Claire Atkinson. There were plenty of overseas buyers in LA this week, eager to get a peek of the hottest new US shows, with several studios that withdrew from licensing in recent years returning to the fray as they aimed to take costly in-house streaming services into profit. Independent distributors too were in town to take advantage and offer their own titles, with the international marketplace having transformed from the days when the world's TV schedules relied on the latest American procedurals or soaps. Of course, the writer's strike was top of mind in the tight economic environment, with content spending and headcount being cut across major media outfits. TV2 Norway International Content Director Nina Lorgan-Flemen, Cineflix Riot's Head of Scripted TV James Dury, and TV4 Sweden Director of Acquisitions, Formats and Developments for the Nordic and Baltic regions Catherine Wiernick spoke to Karolina Kaminska. Here's Wiernick. 
it's hard to tell really what the impact will be. It's been it's been just a short while at the moment. And from what we know, none of our shows are affected right now. What will happen in a few months or weeks, you know, is yet to be seen. And I guess this will be the big topic of discussion in L.A. Uh, we have not heard that, you know, all of a sudden there won't be enough pilots to screen because the pilots were probably already ready uh, before the strike started. Then on the other hand, it might actually affect, uh, affect you know, when you go to series and pick up the full series, it might affect there. So we don't know. We'll see a little bit how it all pans out. Of course, I think it affects us less, given that we don't acquire and depend as heavily only on the U.S. Uh, content. We spread our eggs in many different baskets. We already acquire a lot of other genres. U.K. is super, uh, is super important for us, U.K. crime and U.K. drama. We have Nordic as a very big genre, especially Danish crime. Of course, our local slate is also highly prioritized. That's the core of our whole uh, brand. Uh, so I think that, you know, in non-scripted acquisitions, spe specifically reality, we acquire a lot of big reality brands attached to our local version. So if we have The Bachelor or Survivor or Farmer Wants Survive, Wife or, you know, then we buy the, the UK versions, the Australian, the US versions uh, to build bigger universes. And we're very dependent on that as well. Uh, so I think that we're already sort of set in the fact that we're not so vulnerable in case the volume uh, of U.S. becomes very affected uh, by the strike. But we'll see. It's um, it's always a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a worry for the industry. And um, we're seeing that the, the U.S. studios who who started holding back content when they launched their own platforms are now starting to license their shows again. So how is that changing things in the market? I would say it changed things massively. My own feeling is that it's gone from a seller's market to a little bit more of a buyer's market. It feels like we're back to pre-pandemic, pre-Disney Plus times as far as availability of shows, because during the pandemic and when all the studios equally also started retaining rights, I mean, obviously there was a lot less content out there available and whatever content was great, it was huge competition. And so the price points also ran, you know, insanely high to the point where we we had to back off a few times. There was just no business reason whatsoever. And I think that's changed. I think many of us were standing around thinking, you know, there is some point where this has to end. There's just, it makes no business sense to just retain all the rights. Somebody has to pick up the bill for all that volume of production. And yes, I think we're there at the moment. You know, the market cooled off a bit. The investment rates cooled off. Uh, we're all sort of in the same boat with fewer, bigger, better focus on sustainable business models. Models, uh, on profitability and revenue streams, being responsible in, in your investments and, and really uh, putting every single commission to a test. Uh, and and uh, where every single show really has to, has to prove itself in order to get that space. So um, there is more out there to be had, and uh, I think the dialogues with the studios are great for because it's there is a greater flexibility around rights. Uh, the price points are a bit more reasonable back to you know where we we are really in 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 great constructive dialogues. But I also feel like the market cooled off a bit as far as the buyers not being able to buy as much as well. So there is a bit of a, I wouldn't say at all a standstill, but just comparatively to just a few years back. But it is very positive and we're very happy that, you know, there is an open shop 
culture out there now. And how do you feel about second windows? Would you buy second window rights to a show that was previously available in Sweden um, on, on a global streaming platform that has now become available to you? Or would you be worried that lots of people have already seen it? No, we're absolutely open to that. We've, we have a great example with Yellowstone, for example, which we've bought since the beginning. It was first on Paramount Networks ahead of us and is now on Sky Showtime ahead of us again. But the thing is, I think what's key about second windows is that we need to assess case on case, where has the first window sat? If it's on Netflix, I would say it's a no-go. That is really creamed out right. But if it's like Amazon Prime, which is not huge in, in the Nordics yet, in Sweden, um, Sky Showtime, that is mostly bundled, maybe not huge direct to consumer. It's a great, fantastic service. It's not that at all. And they're going to grow. So I'm saying this like here and now. But of course, it does matter if it's been on a Netflix or on an Amazon. So I think that that is our, our biggest priority, like when we look at second windows, but we definitely open to it. And it can actually be very cost effective. Great. You know, I think, for example, Disney Plus also, they're very open now. I mean, they just recently half a year a year ago also started selling again they on the other hand send more they they do sell mostly second windows because most of their shows still go on disney plus first but they're also opening up so i think um, there are many models to be explored with non-exclusivities second windows holdbacks etc rather than just all the classical first window structure okay and we're in the middle of a global economic crisis at the moment what impact is that having on the market? Well, you know, obviously, I think it has a massive impact. Uh, it's 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 not overnight. It slowly but surely hits us all. And again, I think we're all hit by the fact that prices of production are really increasing, especially for us, whereas more most noticeable is with regards to local production. It's super uh, challenging with, with the productions increasing so much year on year. And again, you know, put levels falling, less people watching, but the curve of the price going upwards. That's a hard ratio to balance and navigate in. And of course, I mean, I wouldn't say it's unaffected on the acquisition sites. We hear just as many um, arguments for from our partners out there saying, you know, that the cost of production has increased, you need to increase your price point. You know, so that is definitely happening. And, you know, ad markets being more volatile, everybody being more cautious. It, there is a definitely an effect. And uh, again, that's why we need to prioritize even more. Say, OK, what do we really need? All the nice to haves, all the mid segment, the small shows, unfortunately, are going to have to step aside, uh, you know, in the race to really be able to bring in, in people, sell subscription, create time spent, sell advertising. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think that the words fewer, bigger, better, I've heard them everywhere. <laughs> like last six months, that's what everybody's talking about. So we'll see. Hopefully it will, you know, settle down in a while. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a bit of a hard time out there, but we've been here before. It's cyclical. Now, Cineflix writes James Jury. How have you found the atmosphere here? Because obviously we're in the middle of a, a writer's strike in the US at the moment. Um, you know, what do you think that the core impact of that will be on the market? Um, there's a kind of um, a, a, a duality in, in it that there are this sort of uncertainty, and I think the writer strike definitely um, is building into that. But there is general uncertainty in, in the industry um, at one point, and then there's also a sort of feeling of things getting back to normal a little bit as well. We're still in that post-COVID stage um, where it feels 
that there is a positive energy in, in the market, um, despite these kind of uncertainties, these bumps in the road. Um, it still feels that the um, people are still open for business and the opportunities for good, well-produced shows are still, um, it, it, it's still great. And um, so we have this kind of interesting scenario, a kind of duality between what's happening in the US and what's happening internationally. Do you have any US scripted shows? We have, um, we're a Canadian production company and uh, we're honed in um, Toronto and Montreal. And so we have long running Canadian productions, including Coroner, which is on The CW, um, Reginald the Vampire on, on Sci Fi, um, but they are produced in Canada, albeit North American shows. Um, the majority of our content comes from the UK, uh, Australia, Israel, um, and the Nordics, really, are the kind of main areas that we focus on. Okay. Um, and so, do you think that the strike will provide opportunities for, for projects coming out of? countries outside of the US, like Canada and, and the UK for example? I don't really think it's going to provide opportunities in that way. I don't sense a state of, of, of panic among US platform streamers, buyers, commissioners. Um, I think, again, it's just a continuation of what has been a, a, a period in which more and more uh, US platforms and, and channels have looked at international content as a good option for them. Um, I think that's driven by a just general contraction of the market, the budget's becoming tighter across even the, the biggest of channels and platforms. And so they're looking at different ways that they can bring quality content through to not to maybe not replace but to add to their US content. And the natural home for that is first of all good English speaking shows like um, from the UK and Australia in, in particular and obviously Canada. Um, but yeah, I think the strike is, is obviously a hot topic at the moment because we're in the middle of it, but I'm not sure it's going to dramatically change how people schedule and the channels that they look for. And, you know, we're in, um, there's uncertainty, as you say, and we're in the middle of this global economic crisis as well. Um, so what impact is that having on the market, you know, in terms of declining commissions, acquisitions, difficulties, funding production? I think the production models are, are changing and uh, we've been seeing that for, for a long time um, because budgets are growing or have grown um, and commissions are staying at a, at a relatively similar rate so the gaps that need to be filled are absolutely increasing. Um, people are looking more and more towards distributors uh, but also working with financiers. We certainly are very flexible with how we work with our producers. Um, helping them to bring or to sort of pre-sale series like we did with Last King of the Cross um, which was a commission from Paramount Plus in Australia and uh, we brought Sky on board who just launched it last week uh, uh, in a pre-sale um, or alternative working with financiers to help us uh, close the gap as we've done with one or two other series um, but I think the key to all of it as far as I see is and this is from to, for distributors, producers and uh, and, and commissioning channels is just to be a little bit more flexible in, in how we operate and, and take each series independently um, and find the best home for it. And where do you see the business being in, in a year's time? What are the main things that will have changed? Um, I'm hoping that the, the, the consolidation, contraction and nerves that we've seen uh, discussed an awful lot, uh, which obviously were, were prompted by the the um, Wall Street getting jitters over the SPOD market uh, will have um, 
will have quietened down. Um, that obviously the well-publicised job losses in, in across the larger studios um, will have uh, will have stopped. So I think all of that creates nerves, and um, any market, any business is better off when uh, they're, when they're not nervous. And I and I, I absolutely see that to be the case. I think in in 18 months' time, or maybe when we're sat here again in LA next year, um, it will be a confident market. Um, and those opportunities that we've put in place over the COVID in which international content has found places beyond its natural borders, whether it be UK shows um, co-proing in Germany or France or um, uh, Spanish shows being picked up in the US market. Um, we hope that all those trends will still be in place and we can grow on from there. Here's TV2 Norway's Nina Logan Fleming. What sort of demand are you seeing for US content at the moment? And has that demand changed or decreased or increased? I would say that the viewers are used to having so much content now. So there is always a high demand, uh, especially for US uh, and especially for us, because I think our legacy is, is having a lot of US content on our linear channel. So that's kind of where we came from. And so we're known for it. So U.S. content is, is still very important to us. And one of the claims that the subscribers have when churning is that they're running out of content. So, yeah, it's an ongoing demand. And we're, we're experiencing a writer's strike in the U.S. at the moment. Um, what impact is that having on the market? And is it impacting any of your shows currently? Well, I really hope they um, get these rights uh, because it's, you know, we feel for them. But at the same time, we hope it's it's not going to be uh, too long uh, because we have a lot of shows that we air day and date with the U.S. So the, the day after they air and a lot of them are, you know, like Grey's Anatomy, the FBI franchise, The Rookie and so forth. So, yes, we will be heavily impacted. But at the same time, you know, we have uh, local shows. Uh, we have other content that we, you know, lean on. And there there is a lot of content still out there that is available. So we're not desperate, but we love love our shows. We love our uh, day and date shows. So hopefully this will be solved. Could the strike force you to look elsewhere for content? Um, depending on how long uh, this will go on. Yes, eventually it will. But uh, we do have a lot of content coming from Scandinavia, from Britain. And of course, there are some local or foreign language shows that are more uh, of interest then. So I think we're not going to ever become desperate because I think we have also a huge content inventory. So it's not going to make us desperate, but we're going to lose a lot of, you know, daily viewing and the duration of the viewing is going to go down. That's for sure. And it's probably going to hurt us in terms of keeping subscriptions. So we're probably going to see some churn. So it's not a good thing for any of us, uh, but we hope um, they get their yeah agreements soon. But uh, we're cheering for them at the same time. And um, one kind of problem that the industry has been experiencing over the last couple of years where we've seen the launch of these studio-led streaming platforms, and that has resulted in, the, in US studios starting to hold back content for their own platforms. Um, but we're now seeing that they're starting to license those shows again. So how does that change things for the market? Well, I think that's wonderful news. It's kind of been strange that a, a studio that produces so much content only has one buyer and that's themselves. So it must be uh, from a financial uh, point of view, uh, much better to, you know, have several clients and, 
And I, I also think that all these platforms, even the big studio streamers, have their DNA. And if they produce a high-end show, that might work for them. But if they produce a procedural or a network show, our network, that might work better on other stream streaming services. So I think you really need to carefully plan. And uh, I think we all can get a little a little piece of everything. I think uh, eating, what do you call it, eating your, uh, having your cake and eating is is um, probably what we're seeing now with all the financials, you know, the and all the um, trade magazines that are coming up now, all the financial situations that they're in. So I think going back to a more balanced portfolio where they're keeping some of the rights, maybe there are some second window opportunities and uh, also some uh, holdbacks because I think we can work around. Yeah. For, so everybody gets a little bit of everything. So with respect to those second windows, then would you buy second window rights to a show that was previously available in your territory on a platform like Prime Video as an example? Um, and has now become available to other channels or do you, would you be worried that lots of people might have already seen it? Well, it depends on who the channel is, if, if it's for the streamer. If so, if it's Netflix who has such a huge uh, coverage, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult. I would say that's a no, but for other you know streamers that have less uh subscriber count uh yes that can make a lot of sense and we we do do that with uh some shows so it really really depends on who has it first and uh because it it could be in the sense that if it's a small show and then you show it it kind of promotes the next season for the streaming service so you're you know you have to make sure that there's room for both of us so i would say yes and no (laughs) (laughs) depending on who it is. Okay. Um, And we're we're in the middle of a a global economic crisis at the moment. How is that affecting the market? I think there will be like a bigger, better, fewer strategy. I think, you know, for many years, it was like quantity uh, versus quality and just having enough. Um, I think people are now, or producers and streamers and channels are looking at the fewer, bigger, better strategy. I see that from many sources and you know everything is more expensive now to produce talent producers everything so um yeah i think it's it's gonna affect us but maybe not in a worse way it could be you know that more quality and less middle medium shows people have less of a if they don't like it at the first episode they they know there's so much content out there so you have to be really specific in in what you're going to produce and what target group it's for so yeah i think um it will it will have an effect on the commissioning side and also the production side Nina Logan Fleming speaking with Carolina Kaminska. Shortly, we'll be heading back to Content LA to hear from CBS Studios' Brian Seabury, Lindsay Martin, Kate Adler and Alec Botnick. But first, new documentary series McGregor Forever debuted on Netflix last week, following mixed martial arts superstar Conor McGregor over a three-year period and made by US-based Religion of Sports, co-founded by Gotham Chopra, seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady and NFL Hall of Famer Michael Strahan. Chopra spoke to Jordan Pinto about making the show and his company's plans for growth in line with the rising global popularity of sports documentaries. Gotham, thank you very much for joining me today to chat about this uh, this docu series. Uh, how are you? 
I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to talk about this after a long time. Uh, right. Well, that, that's that's a good a good place to begin. Um, maybe you can talk a bit about um, how this came together in the early stages. Um, I know um, filming on this started 2018, so that was about a year after um, Conor had had his or Conor McGregor had had his uh, his kind of mega boxing fight with Floyd Mayweather. That's nearly five years ago that filming yeah. started. So, at what point did you officially get him involved with this project? I really got involved closer to end of 2019 um, and that's when it was sort of really coming back or coming together in terms of there was a relationship I think or uh, interest between Connor and Netflix to work together you know they, they've had a project before that was um successful um on netflix and so i think there was sort of eagerness or interest in collaborating again and that's when i got involved obviously my company religion of sports works a lot with elite athletes we're co-founded by tom brady and michael strahan we've done a lot of stuff with you know people of that caliber athletes of that caliber so that's when i got involved but it was the end of 2019 then 2020 came <laughs> pandemic and you know life changed i mean the thing about sports documentaries is that they're inherently quote unscripted you're dealing with winning and losing and injuries and just unpredictability i mean that's just the nature of the storytelling but when you add on a global pandemic and you add on you know this is connor's an international star he's all over the place that brought a new set of challenges i guess but in some ways also that's you know what sparks creativity so to your point you know, I was fortunate to have a co-director, Dara McCarthy, who had a relationship with Connor, who had been working with Connor going back to 2018, maybe even a little bit before that, and had been capturing a lot of content. And so we had this pretty incredible archive to be able to dig through and, and really find ways of more creative storytelling. Um, what was it like working with Connor McGregor on this? Kind of, as you said, he, he's not only the the most famous um, kind of combat sports athlete on the planet. Um, He's also kind of one of the most famous people alive. Um, he's yeah. also a controversial figure too. Um, and then he also has a ton of stuff going on outside the world of fighting as well. So he, he has, you know, he has a, you know, many different commitments. What, what was like, what was that like um, as people that were trying yeah. to capture this documentary series? Yeah, it wasn't easy. I'll put it that way. I mean, he conners all of those things and he's, and he's an international icon and, and literally between being in Ireland, Dubai, because there's a lot going on, Fight Island out there and a lot of his training. Los Angeles. I mean, it was just sort of all over the place. So just chasing him around. Fortunately, again, going back to Dara, like who was with him was almost like embedded with him. So even if I wasn't necessarily there always physically, um, Dara was. Um, so I think there were definitely inherent challenges, but I'd go back to like, forget all that, like the personality. The personality is entirely unique. And the good news about like when you're with Connor, actually he's, he's a fighter. So he knows how to like, focus his attention and like if he walks in the octagon and he's not focused it's you know can be devastating i mean it's a violent violent sport and he almost has that ability i found with him like there's always all this crazy noise and everything going on around him like you said he's a polarizing personality so people have strong opinions for or against him but when you're with him and you sit down and like we're having a conversation he's present he's focused i'd say that's like one of his great gifts is presence he just knows how to like put all the noises aside and and speak and he's very very articulate and he's very candid he he says you know what he feels he says what he means and and for a filmmaker for a storyteller that's 
that that's something you, you really look for and value. And yeah, that, that was kind of, that was actually going to be a, a question um, that I was going to ask, like, what was he like as a subject? I, I think he, I, I don't know, I've, I've followed mixed martial arts quite closely. And um, he's one of those people where I think you could ask him, you know, you could ask him the same question, um, you know, 50 different times. And he will, he, he doesn't just trot out the same answer. Like he's yeah. very articulate and he will give you, he'll kind of give you something new every time. And he's, uh, I think he's what, you know, one of the most gifted um, talkers in the history of um, you know of combat sports like what what was that like um, working with someone that I think you know especially when on on his day he's um, he's kind of as as charismatic as maybe anyone yeah he's a fascinating character because you know like we've discussed like he's he's very present he's very articulate he's got an amazing story he knows how to communicate it but I would also say what's really interesting about Connor is like there's such a strong perception of him from people so you and he's endlessly covered right like every day people are talking about him and um so you have this not only were we fortunate to have the personal archive and just like all the stuff in and out of the octagon over the last few years but he's obviously hugely dynamic within the world of ufc so they cover him like crazy you know all the training and all the stuff in and around the the sport then there's just like this endless media noise around him. And I think that is, as a filmmaker, again, as a storyteller, that's great because there's this strong perception. There's this endless noise that's sort of covering him from the outside, but doesn't necessarily have access to the inside. And so you get to play that off. I mean, it creates a lot of tension, which is something you're always looking for. And so that, you know, I, I talk about him like he's just a thing, like he's a subject. I mean, fortunately, I got to know him a little bit, which again, is like part of the getting underneath. I, I've spent time with him and his family and his, and watched him as a father and, you know, um, film some of that. So there's just layers and layers and layers there. Um, because obviously, I mean, we've all seen it. And I've been there with him, um, like on the stage, you know, at, at some of the the press conferences and just there's like this carnival circus showman i mean it is wild and when you contrast that with the guy who takes his kids to the park and is just a dad in a way like you know making sure his kids don't fall off the jungle gym or whatever it's fascinating and and i really i think that's like where the the real layers are how involved was he in terms of i i correct me if i'm wrong is is he an ex executive producer on the project or no he's not i, I okay. he's not but because I, I actually think like you know look there's this fear in some ways especially with celebrities or athletes of a certain scale of like well you don't want to create vanity projects and the credit sometimes kind of no matter what the situation is can create confusion you know for the viewers for the media etc so no he's not an executive producer he was involved. I mean, this is his storytelling. And I actually like really embrace that. Like this has to be, this is not us as reporters doing a story on Conor McGregor. It's working with you. It's and not just you, it's working with, you know, Adi Attar, his manager to really like tell the story you want to tell, like where you are in your life. So he's very involved, but I wouldn't say Conor's not the type who's like looking at cuts and giving you notes and, you know, like really he just isn't, he's got a lot going on, but I also think he has a lot of confidence i guess in who he is you know and and not he's not a guy who's sitting in the edit room trying to like you know get things cut out or anything like that um 
speaking of um how much how much footage did you have from the obviously you cut this down to a four-hour yeah. um, project in total did it require a lot of, of of trimming down like if you could talk to us about oh, yeah. that process i mean there's i would say hundreds of hours of just raw footage you know <clears throat> because you know one of the things connor does and i think where dara you know the co-director originally worked with connor was um you know he he just shot a lot of his training because connor's if you want to know like where he does obsess in terms of like it's like he watches all the footage from his training sessions because he's like this mad scientist who's always trying to sort of perfect his craft and you know trying to like tweak and make himself better so just in terms of like sparring footage i'd say there's like hundreds of hours you know of stuff now of course like we didn't go through all of it um we kind of knew what we were looking for but then just you know this is a guy on the move endlessly so not only of course does he have his fight career and everything that's going on there he has this big businesses and all this other stuff and so a lot of that was documented also and then obviously interviews and stuff so yeah it was a lot it was a lot of stuff that's why it took three and a half years to get to this point is to get it down i have a collaborator named liam hughes english by background or scottish i should say and um he really sat in the edit room and really helped find that story for us from your perspective who do you feel the audience is for this um i think whenever you have you know a documentary of this nature about a well-known sports figure you'll have like the you know hardcore hardcore mixed martial arts yeah. fans who know every, every single thing that happens in and has happened in the ufc or all the mma promotions for the last five years and then you'll also want to bring in a new audience um, who probably know nothing or know very little about Conor McGregor. Where did you find the balance there? Yeah. And, and who who was who was it for? Yeah, I'd say there's almost like I look at it as three audiences, right? Like there's hardcore MMA, you know, UFC fans who feel like they know a lot, and you you want to never overlook that audience you know in fact i think it's really important not to quote dumb it down too much and lose that audience like you know and so very conscious of that and making it feel authentic and real to that audience then there's like this secondary audience i would call it which is like connor cuts through like people have heard of him you may not be a you know fight fan or anything but he's just he's he's a celebrity in a way um he's been out there so those people are kind of curious and you want to like reach that audience and then there's this third audience which is may or may not have heard of him and don't particularly care probably don't like ufc it's too violent it's you know it's all this stuff but to me that's actually really interesting from a perspective of filmmakers you want to like reach you want to transcend the sport and you want to this to feel interesting to me the best compliment is when you get saying yeah you know i don't really like you know, mixed martial arts. I've never watched it, but I don't know. Somehow I saw the trailer. It looked cool. I started watching it. Wow. Like I thought it was interesting. I was inspired. I think there's a part of Connor's story that's not a part, but I think his story in general, not just his overall story, but like his ability to come back over and over and over again from disappointment, like just pick himself up, up, you know, literally and figuratively off the mat, I think is interesting and really inspiring. And you don't have to be a fight fan or a Connor fan to you know, we all deal with disappointment and and you know things that don't go our way and his ability to not get bogged down in that and to reimagine and reinvent himself and re-inspire himself is pretty pretty great in terms of the timing 
what was the decision to release it now? You know, obviously you've kind of been, you know, you've been filming since 2018. Um, was there a strategic reason behind now? Like, had you had you found the story arc that you you wanted? Like, what what was the uh, yeah, decision I mean, making? You know, I think like there's certain people. I mean, he's a young guy. You know, I know like in fight terms, maybe he's getting up there, but like he's 34, 35, I think right now. Um, you know, there's a you could go on forever, right? Like, and he's not only a guy who's committed to continue to fight, and so there'll be more fights in the future but there's certainly a lot of other stuff going on like he's he's created quite the life for himself quite the business for himself but it did feel like we're at a moment now um just after everything that's gone on because a lot has gone on the last few years both for him inside the octagon but also outside in terms of his personal life his relationships his kids like it felt like a marker you know a moment in time where it's like there's almost like a breath because it's been non-stop the last few years and you know, it was almost like, oh, either we put this together and put it out now, or like we have to keep on going for another year or two and kind of follow the full comeback wherever it ends up in terms of the octagon. And I think, you know, it just, it felt like he feels to me, this is just my observation, at a really interesting stage of life, not just professionally, but personally. And so, it, yeah, it felt like a sort of reflective moment and uh, an opportunity to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Would there be any um, potential for, you know, a, another a, a follow-up or a sequel um, documentary series? I mean, I don't, he's training, he's training and he's committed to coming back. I don't know that a fight has been scheduled, you know, privately or certainly publicly, but he says he's fighting. Um, so obviously there's more story to be told whether or not I have the endurance to, you know, um, do it. We'll see. But um, but yeah, I think there's, there's definitely more. He's not going anywhere, whether it's inside the octagon or outside. So there's a lot more story to be told. Um, th- this project, um, h- how do you feel it's a showcase for um, what religion of sports is is trying to build as a company? It's, it's like, you know, the perfect strike. You know, you have an international, iconic, polarizing athlete um, that at a certain moment in time who's able to reflect and really unpack his own stories, what has made him who he is. I mean, that's that's what we do. And I actually think I've loved all of the athletes I've worked with, you know, from Tom Brady to Simone Biles to Steph Curry. Um, Connor is interesting because one, he's, you know, it's not a team sport. So there's something really um, just also primordial about the fight game. Um, but he's also international in a way that I think very few people are. So that sort of like feels like a natural evolution for what we do. And then, you know, the company just in general, the business is growing. We've actually have a UK based, you know, partner now. We acquired a company called Jiva Maya and, you know, really focused more in the F1 world, international cricket, sports, international football, um, soccer. So a lot of growth. But I think Connor, you know, the combination of Connor and who he is and his story, Netflix biggest platform in the world um, is definitely like a fun evolution of the company. Um, thinking more broadly about um, the kind of sports documentaries and, and the rise of those, I think we're obviously at an interesting time right now with a U.S. writer's strike on on the scripted side. Do you see this as being, I think, kind of the the ascent of of sports sports focused or sports adjacent documentaries is is already there anyway? 
do you, do you think i suppose other other factors outside you know including um a right to strike do you, do you feel like um commissioners networks platforms might be especially interested in sports sports focused documentaries that maybe aren't as subject or as potentially disrupted yeah. by um by some of the whims of uh, what's going on in the scripted world i don't know like i'm gonna hedge my bets here and say probably <laughs> Yes, I mean, the longer the strike goes on, the more, you know, non-scripted type of programming that isn't, you know, regulated by the guild will see a bump, I, I would guess. I don't necessarily think now, but maybe depending on how things stretch, you know, if, if things stretch um, for weeks, months, whatever. Yes, I think that probably you'll see a bump. You know, in terms of the sports of it all, yeah, there's our, we've already, like you noted, the trend has already started the last few, the last year or two. I mean, we've searched have been fortunate timing like right at the heart of it so that's good but i would also say like i'm a creator by background or by at my core and you know getting too caught up and trying to identify trends too much and capitalize on trends is a sort of dangerous game i think you know the thing i love about sports is that sports about human potential it's about being the best version of yourself and they're inherently dramatic winning and losing and um and that's all the sort of elements of this story. So I look at it as these are archetypal stories. They've always been interesting. They always will be interesting. The trend, the pendulum may swing a little like hyper interest, maybe a little less interest. Different sports have, you know, different moments in time, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup or the NBA finals or whatever. But at their core, it's about perseverance. That's the thing about sports. They're inherently about perseverance, resilience, accountability, you know, focus, discipline, just like all these things that I think are core human values. And I think that's really, you know, more than any trend, more than any strike thing that will make sports storytelling, you know, here to stay. Gotham Chopper speaking with Jordan Pinto. CBS Studios is behind series including NCIS, Star Trek, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ghosts, Dead to Me, Colin from Accounts and many more. The Paramount Global-owned company's executive vice president of drama development Brian Seabury, head of international co-productions Lindsay Martin, head of comedy development Kate Adler and head of animation and alternative Alec Botnick were among those at C21's Content LA last week. The team spoke with Pippa Lambert about some of their recent hits, titles on the upcoming slate and the ways in which they look to work with third parties. So this is CBS Studios, uh, one of the world's leading suppliers of entertainment programming with more than 70 series currently in production for broadcast, cable networks, streaming services and other emerging platforms. You guys have got a huge slate. It includes the commercially successful and critically acclaimed scripted programming like NCIS, CIS and the ever-growing Star Trek universe. Plus, award-winning late-night shows like The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, daytime talk shows, and an extensive library of iconic intellectual property. And within the Paramount, Paramount Global ecosystem, CBS Studios is the leading supplier of hit shows for the CBS Network and Paramount Plus and as well as some of the, supplying them, as well as some of the biggest hits for Showtime, Comedy Central, and Nickelodeon. Today, we have key members of the development team here with us. Please welcome Brian Seabury, Kate Adler, Alec Botnick, and Lindsay Martin. (laughs) 
Brian. I'd love to hear how about you how you operate as a studio within the CBS Paramount universe and the wider market. You can sell to the full market of buyers, but you also have a lot of internal options, for instance, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and CBS. How do you navigate the market to find the best home for a project? Yeah, it, you know, we are a studio first and foremost. You're not talking to CBS Network, so it is a, a differentiator as, as a seller. Um, but we have sort of an embarrassment of riches as far as our in-house buyers, you know? So if you're, if you're coming to us, certainly in drama development, thinking a lot about CBS Broadcast Network, as you said, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and then, yeah, we have an ability to sell all over town, um, and that, you know, is a big calling card for us, for storytellers to come to us and make sure we can find the right home for their, for their shows. Um, so, I, you know, CBS Network, I think, separates itself creatively in a great way where we can get a wide breadth of types of shows creatively that come in a way where you know it's a CBS show, right? It's, 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 it's high quality, it's character first, it's always gonna be, they're always gonna have sort of a close-ended story there, kind of a full meal episodically, but some great serialized stories going. And from there, we're some, then there's sort of a continuum as far as Paramount Plus and Showtime. And then if, the, if the, the pitch or the show idea doesn't quite make sense for any of those, then certainly, the, hopefully, the, the world's our oyster as far as taking things around town. And do you, when you hear a pitch from a creative before you've taken it out, do you have an idea of where you want it to land or do you work with the creators? And how do you work with them to figure out how and how it gets out and if you have different pitches for different buyers, for example? Yeah, I mean, the essence of the job is, you know, getting excited about the writer, the producer, the idea, and from there, finding the right home for it. Right, so you're working with them as you hear the idea, as you work on the idea, and you are, it's a constant conversation about where, where might this work. Sometimes you have an idea about where it would work, but often it happens in that pitch room where it's sort of magical, where the buyer is telling you at the end of the pitch why you should bring it there, you know? Um, and, you know, we don't do a, a lot of, you know, asking buyers exactly what are you looking for. I, I don't think the best shows have come from a question like that. I think that we, we, you know, try to encourage and nurture our writers and producers to come up with something hopefully original, something that they want to write, have something to say. Um, and then we take that out and see who will kind of embrace us. And that, that tends to be where things, you know, hopefully really, really sing. Unless it's IP that you already have in the catalog, and then that's a different strategy. Um, many of the legacy media companies are focusing on franchise and existing IP to develop um, as part of their strategy as either a studio or whoever owns that IP. For CBS Studios, your two, driver, two drama pilots for CBS Network this season was Matlock, a reimagining of the classic TV show, and Elspeth, which is a series based on an existing character from The Good Fight and The Good Wife. How do you know it's the right time to either try to expand a franchise or bring back an iconic franchise, an iconic piece of IP, rather? I, I don't think we view it totally different from when I hear an, a purely original idea. You know, if we were having this conversation a year ago, I would be talking about So Help Me Todd and Fire Country, neither of which um, were based on intellectual property as far as own titles. They were shows that writers 
had, a, had a, again, a reason for being something they wanted to say through the prism of that show. That's kind of the bar. Do I, do I like it? Do I want to watch it? Can I sell it? Does it make sense for, the, you know, for, for us as a studio to take out? And I think if I keep that as the bar, even when it's a title, then, you know, the, 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 then again, those criteria of does it have a reason for being right now, you apply it, I think, similarly if it's a title or if it isn't. So, you know, in the case of, of Matlock, you know, Jenny Ehrman, our creator, when we talked to her about the title, you know, she came back to us several days later and she was talking a lot about society, you know, viewing, she said women of a certain age sometimes um, are a little invisible in society and she wanted to comment on that, comment on it through a show and she thought what a great title to do that with. You know, he was, he was famously a man early on Let's, let's now do it with this title. I, have a, a, I Jenny, have a lot I want to say through that. Um, and if you assure me we can cast an actress who is 70 years old, we're not going to cast a 50-year-old actress who plays 70 or something, and if we can do it right, I really think we're, we're on to something. And that, to us at the studio, and then eventually to CBS as the buyer, um, was, again, exactly like the kind of, the kind of things you're, you're listening for, regardless if it's a title or not. Okay, I wanted to ask you about Ghosts. Can you take us through the process from inception to its multi-platform success and tell, you, tell us how you think, what the future looks like for the title? It looks good. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see, I was first um, exposed to the British original, the format, um, when Colin Studebaker, who works on the drama team, uh, sorry, at the comedy team at the network, um, stumbled upon it and fell in love with it and we all watched it right away and completely agreed, and I reached out to Dan McDermott, who was at um, BBC at the time, um, and it, it all happened very quickly after that, um, and Joe Port and Joe Weissman were the first writers who came to a, uh, our minds. I work with Alec on the comedy team, and um, fortunately, it was a love fest. They watched the original, fell in love with it, absolutely saw what the American version could be or what the potential was. Um, but it was a little bit like The Office, like both things could be great, but very different. So the American version and the British version. Um, and we pitched it, um, CBS heard the pitch and bought it in the room. And um, the only hiccup came when uh, it, this was picked up to pilot and we were, our table read was, I think it was Thursday, March 12, 2020. Does anyone remember? Yeah. It was that Thursday. Um, so unfortunately, because of pandemic, we couldn't shoot the pilot till the following December um, 2020. So that was the only hiccup. Everything else went great. Um, and now I'm happy to report it's doing very well on CBS and on Paramount+. Plus. Okay, so your new slate, Kate, includes the highly anticipated Frasier series for Paramount Plus and the newly picked up Popper's House starring Damon Wayans and Damon Wayans Jr. for CBS. With recent hits that includes Ghosts and The Neighbourhood and the award-winning Dead to Me for Netflix, one of my favourites, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and of course Jane the Virgin uh, for The CW, it feels like you've been breaking the comedy mould for some time. As the comedy space has become broader beyond the classic sitcom, can you walk us through your approach to comedy development and formats? Uh, I'd say the most exciting thing for us about Ghost is that it sort of redefined what is a CBS comedy. It's sort of, uh, we can develop things that 
normally we would probably say, oh, that's not for CBS. Like, you know, ghosts seem like out of the norm. Um, so now suddenly there's this feeling that anything's possible, I'd say. Um, and my favorite kinds of comedies are non-conforming comedies or genre benders where you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Or um, So I definitely feel like there's a feeling that anything is possible comedy-wise and that our job is to find a home for it. If it's not CBS, then we'll find... We want to go to where the enthusiasm is. I agree with what you were saying earlier, that you want... It's all about fit between product and buyer. Brilliant. And that sounds a lot of fun to be developing in all those different areas. What a great time. Um, Lindsay, hi. Hello. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about international um, and the international um, part of the business for CBS has been important for a long time, for CBS Studios, and you're really ramping it up. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your plans and some of the projects that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So the international co-production part of the business is based in London and started around five years ago, I'd say. So far, we've launched four series across Europe and Australia. So our slate is quite diverse. It's a mix of local language projects as well as English language projects originating in the UK, Australia, and beyond, really. Um, and it's there's a big appetite, there's a big ambition for this sense of the business. I think in our president of the studio, David Staff, we have a great advocate, we have a great champion who really sees the opportunity international. And I think what we're really trying to do is invest in creative communities outside the US. I think we all in this room can probably agree that great stories come from anywhere. And I think we're, we're very much capitalizing on that notion. There's a project that I've heard about called Gold Diggers. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we're quite busy in Australia at the moment. Uh, last year, we launched a series called Colin from Accounts, which Alec is going to talk about after me. Uh, later this year, we're launching NCIS Sydney, which is our first ever iteration of the franchise outside the US. So that's a really exciting moment for, for the whole Paramount Global um, family. But before that, we are launching this very special comedy series called Gold Diggers, which is a co-production with the Alliance for the ABC network in Australia. And it's unlike anything I think you've seen before. Um, it's about two sisters who flee Sydney and move to a gold rush town in 1850s Australia, hoping to find themselves some newly rich idiot husbands. <laughs> and when is that coming on? That is the summer in Australia. On ABC, and then do you control the distribution on that? Or? That's controlled by Paramount Global Content Distribution Group. Um, making a show that will work for a local audience and that will also work for global audiences can be a bit overwhelming to con contemplate. And it's super tough to get it right, but when it works, it feels so natural, of course. Um, how do you manage that process with local creators? I think it's the hardest part, but it's also the most important part, of course. And for us, I think it's really important to be authentic and tell the story in a you know, culturally specific way. And I think the more specific it is, the better chance it has of traveling. And beyond that, I think we just want to empower creators and really invest in local talent and voices that we believe in um, and just give them the tools to tell the story that they want to tell, really. And how do these ideas 
get to you? Is it from the producers or is it broadcasters or distributors? Particularly when you're outside of the US, there's so many different ways that projects can get to you. Yeah, outside the US, you know, we do rely on third-party producers. Um, we don't have a myriad of first-look deals outside the US, so we're very much open to meeting any producer who has a fantastic idea that has legs to travel internationally. Um, we do work with broadcasters as well, quite closely. You know, those relationships are really important outside the US because they're integral in sort of connecting us with producers who are looking for studio partners. So they can come about in a variety of different ways, and I think that's what makes international so exciting and um, such a big opportunity. Alec, let's Hi. talk about animation. Um, CBS Studios has spent the last few years expanding its animation slate, and the result has been high-profile hits, including Everybody Still Hates Chris for Paramount+, Plus, Andy Samberg's Dig Man, the premiere this year on Comedy Central and just got a second season order, yeah. and Star Trek Lower Decks, which just got picked up for a fifth season. Can you explain the strategy behind all this growth? Uh, sure. Um, so, I mean, similar to kind of what Kate and Brian were saying earlier, at some point the strategy at the studio was to provide content for buyers outside of CBS. And so in 2017, we came up with the idea of an animation strategy and that aligned with some of our producers and creators wanting to build out in that space. And Alex Kurtzman specifically, who oversees the Star Trek universe, wanted to find some content that would uh, bring in new fans as well as engage uh, existing ones. Um, and he wanted to do that with animation. Uh, and conveniently, uh, I had known Mike McMahon for quite some time, and he had a Twitter account where he uh, created fake episodes for a fake season of Star Trek Next Generation. And the A story was like a totally normal A story, but the B stories were like this 100% mundane activity. And the contrast was so funny that Simon Schuster actually hired him to write a real book about a fake season of Star Trek. <laughs> um, and so knowing that that happened, uh, that Mike had this uh, in his back pocket, called him and, uh, and yeah, the rest is history. I wanted to talk about Colin from Accounts. Not only because I think Rob Gibson's here from Easy Tiger. Um, it's a really great show and it's getting so much well-deserved attention. Can you just talk us through how it came together? Uh, sure. Um, I think similar to what I think you've heard from Brian, Kate, and Lindsay, I think for us, we, uh, we really follow the passions of the writers and producers that we work with. And uh, we had a show with Rob, uh, with Patrick Bramel, uh, and Trent O'Donnell that we loved. That was actually uh, Paramount Plus's first original comedy. And at some point, uh, Patty and Harry sat down with us and said that they had this idea that they that they wanted to get made about a little bit based on their own uh, relationship and uh, you know you know when when a creator who you trust has such an authentic story that is so true to themselves and also involves a dog, I mean I, there was really no saying no to that. Um, but it was brand new to us at the time. Uh, and uh, we'd never really engaged on anything like that before. And so it was actually uh, through the vision of, of 
Debbie Barrick, who we uh, who used to be the head of business affairs at CBS, who we brought the opportunity to, and she also fell in love with it and uh, and okayed us getting in with Rob and Patty and Harry, and now the show exists. And please, please watch it. It is delightful. And if you haven't seen their uh, appearance on the BAFTAs, I highly recommend it. It is probably the best uh, appearance on an award show I've ever seen. <laughs> it is a really good show. I love it. Um, so there's an opportunity for a few more general questions. And if you wanted to submit anything, I think you can do it through that, that silo. I wanted to ask, um, it's always good to know when you're at a conference like this, like how do we get to you? What's the best way to bring ideas? And I think it might be different from you, Lindsay, to, and we maybe touched on that, but if you wanted to pick it up and, and to the rest of you at the studio and over here. Yeah, well, I think, you know, generally, I think it's always best to go through representatives. I think that's sort of the standard protocol for the studio. And internationally, it's, it's much the same. Um, we do work a lot, as I said, with producers outside the organization, outside the Paramount Global family, and that's something we're very, very open to. So our door is very much open to you. And one of the questions that came in, um, so I'm going to make this a two-part question for you, Brian. Um, is the best way to bring things into you um, through representative, but this question's asking, um, do, package, do projects need to be packaged? And I think that, you know, that can sometimes be helpful or help things to pop. Well, when coming to me, no. I mean, if, if you know, I, I'm, I'm buying, you know, I'm betting on the writer and their ability to execute, right? So I'm going to make sure I'm educated. If I don't know the writer otherwise, I'm making sure that I'm educating myself and, and my team as well, reading them, you know, looking at their, at their TVography or their filmography, plays, whatever it is. I, I want to make sure that we're getting into business with somebody who can execute and whose writing kind of speaks to us. Um, then does that writing kind of match up with the show that they want to write? Um, but I think packaging for me is more something that maybe we as the sellers at the studio then kind of deem, is this something that maybe isn't, do we maybe not have quite enough on the sales front or quite enough to show all that the show can be if it's just as a verbal pitch and maybe there's another element to bring in. Is it a director? Is it a lead? And we've done it, you know, as you can imagine, any number of ways, but no, it's not a requirement to come into me as, the, as your partner in hopefully selling. I wanted to ask about diversity and how the studio feels that they're doing in efforts. That's on me. Um, we are super proud of what we've accomplished even in the last few years. Um, in terms of representation, both in writers' rooms and in terms of the projects that we acquire and take out and sell. Um, but that doesn't mean our work is done <laughs> by any means. Um, and a lot of that is fueled by, we're always craving novelty and a fresh idea. And we don't just want to be hearing from the same over and over again. There's room for everybody, and I'd say some of our favorite projects are not from one single perspective. They're from a fresh perspective. So always, always looking for more diversity in terms of our creators. There's a specific question here for you, Kate, which is, um, do you have any advice for those who want to get into comedy development? Uh, Let's say it's as a, an executive. Not as a writer, as an executive? As an exec. It was uh -huh. my question. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, how to get into comedy development. Um, I mean, I came up, uh, I was an assistant at an agency. It's sort of the apprentice system. Uh, you either work for a literary agent or for a development executive, learning how to do their job, basically. But there is no graduate school for this. I would say the best thing you could do is read as much as you can and know what you love and know what writers write the things you love um, and become an expert on that and just read a lot and watch a lot. Nobody wants to be a drama exec? <laughs> Apparently not. There's, uh, there's yeah, one no, minute that's, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. To come in. Um, another question that it's always really difficult to answer, and particularly because you sell to so many places, and I think that's one of the misconceptions about CBS Studios, that you're just for CBS, Paramount, Showtime, and you do sell things like Dead to Me. I have to remind myself that that was you guys. Congratulations. What's your mandate? It's hard to answer, so you might, I don't know, we've got a minute left. Single word? I'm <laughs> joking. Um, do you have a, a mandate that, or requirements that you're excited to, to get? I mean, finished? I think I speak for everyone up here when I say we want to do things that are entertaining and compelling, but ideally say something about the human condition and life in 2023 or... 1849 or whatever it is, but we're really looking to work with creators who have something to say. I think that certainly applies internationally. I know, you know, in the UK specifically, we're always looking for elevated crime, psychological thrillers. Um, I think that sort of applies across Europe as well. And, you know, these are the types of shows that we find do travel and do sell and do perform and make commercial sense for us, but it really comes down to, you know, writers who have something to say at the end of the day. Do I want to watch it? Like, I have a much better chance of being out there in the marketplace with something that I can truly believe in that I want to watch, that I want to see get on the air, you know? So, that's my personal mandate. Well, I think we've run out of time on the, on the nose, and um, I think that's why we're all here, because we love... TV and entertainment so much, but I just wanted to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Seabury, Lindsay Martin, Kate Adler and Alec Botnick speaking with Pippa Lambert at C21's Content LA. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, the podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.